Uh, well, uh, good morning. Uh, great to be here with you. Um, we are continuing our, our series uh, right now, working through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And what we've been doing uh, really over the last uh, few months slash years is learning from the different encounters that Jesus had with people who weren't necessarily his followers, people who didn't really know him. Uh, for example, we've looked at how he related with uh, a bunch of pretty ordinary Jewish fishermen. We've seen how he responded to uh, a tax collector uh, called Zacchaeus. We've seen how he interacted with a young guy who was incredibly wealthy and talented, yet still felt like there was something missing in his life. Looked at a whole lot of encounters with ordinary, everyday kinds of people. And today what we're going to do is look at how Jesus dealt with people who wanted to have a debate with him people who wanted to quiz him and try and catch him out. We're going to learn how he handled people who came to him with a whole bunch of pretty difficult questions. Now, I might be wrong, but I think this is a really good topic for us to be looking at and thinking about right now. Just look at the news of what's happening in the world most days, and you're likely to be confronted with a whole load of events that might cause people to come up to a Christian, which many of us in the room are, and say, what about that? How on earth could you ever believe in a God who would allow that kind of thing to happen? In preparation for this morning, I just glanced at the BBC website on Tuesday morning. Here were the headlines. Scotland Yard is investigating allegations of child sexual abuse by former Prime Minister Sir Edward Heath. He's one of a number of prominent names being looked at by detectives following claims of historical child abuse by establishment figures. Next headline. The Myanmar government has appealed for international aid amid floods which have killed at least 46 people and have affected more than 210,000 people. Headline number three. At least 11 people have died after a building collapsed near India's western city of Mumbai. Many others are feared trapped beneath the three-story building. Just out of interest, how many of you ever had someone say to you, how can you believe in a God who allows that kind of stuff to happen? How many have had people asking that kind of question? Fair few in the room. In fact, perhaps some of us here right now, those are the questions we are grappling with. We're thinking, I don't understand. I, I struggle to connect faith in the God of the Bible with the world that I see around me. It can be a real challenge to think through how to respond to those kind of issues, those kinds of questions. So what I want to do this morning is take a look at Jesus and also see how he dealt with people when they came at him with some of the burning issues of his day. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 20. There are three separate questions, three separate issues that Jesus deals with in this passage. I'm going to pick it up in verse 20. Uh, look again at the passage that I think you were uh, camped out in last time. I'm going to take a slightly different approach uh, to that passage and then look at two further passages, two further stories of questions uh, that Jesus addresses. Luke 20 verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, They, the teachers of the law and the chief priests, sent spies who pretended to be sincere. 
They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And so the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus saw through their duplicity, their hypocrisy, and he said to them, show me a denarius, which would have been a a common everyday Roman coin back in that time. Whose image, he said, and whose inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. That's the first question. It was a bit of a political hot potato. Here's the second one, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They're God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And again, no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's the second question, trying to trip Jesus up with a question about the Bible to make his beliefs look incoherent or inconsistent. Now the third question is one posed by Jesus himself. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? As we're going to see a bit later on, the whole point of this final question is to get people to consider who Jesus really is. So we've got three different questions being addressed here in these passages. It's like in every generation there are people looking for a bit of a debate about God. There were then, there are now, there always will be. Some of them just want to trap Jesus and his followers into saying something that makes them look bad. That's what's happening in this first story about paying taxes to Caesar. Some of them, they want to make Jesus' beliefs seem incoherent or inconsistent. That's what we see in the second story. Some of them 
are simply interested in the debate. They like a good argument, and Jesus challenges them to decide who they think he really is. He wants to ask them a question about his identity. That's the point of the third story. Now, before we get into it anymore, I think it's important just to take a step back and see how Jesus' approach is very different in each of those stories. Do you notice how he doesn't treat them all the same. It's like before he enters into the debate, he stops and considers why is this person asking this question? It's already seen. Some people are asking questions simply because they want to catch you out. And if you assume they're being sincere, you end up being tricked by them and made to look foolish. As Proverbs 26 verse 4 puts it, Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. You need to read what's actually going on. If they're trying to trap you, don't fall for it. But if, on the other hand, you have someone coming to you with a genuine question born out of deep personal pain, it's important you don't think they're trying to trick you and just kind of fob them off and refuse to engage with their very serious desire to find answers and comfort. For example, you would respond very differently, wouldn't you, to a news reporter who's writing an article about that tragedy in Myanmar that I referred to earlier. You'd respond differently to a news reporter to the way you'd respond perhaps to a mother who had just lost a child in the floods there. And so the first thing we always need to do is try and look beneath the surface at why the person is asking the question. If someone asks you, for example, why God allows suffering, try and find out what they mean by that. Try and find out what lies behind the question. What what kind of suffering do you mean? Tell me a little bit about what's behind the question. Because you don't want to deal with something in an abstract way when it might be intensely personal and vice versa. That's what Jesus does here. He treats these three groups of people very differently. So let's look at each of these stories in turn. Let's see what we can learn from Jesus' approach. In the first story, if you remember, the religious leaders raise a pretty contentious political issue in this attempt to trip Jesus up and get him into trouble. The key question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in their world, the reason why this was a bit of a political hot potato, particularly if you were standing near the temple in Jerusalem, which is where they were standing at that point, is because Jesus is teaching Jews. And the Jews don't want to follow Caesar and pay taxes to him, because they're to have no king but God. And so it could be seen as idolatrous or blasphemous to submit to Rome by paying taxes. So if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to look pretty bad to the crowd. But if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, then he'll look bad to the ruling Roman authorities who may well arrest him and put him to death. So you see, either way, he's in trouble. It's like the question is deliberately designed to force him onto the wrong side of the issue. I think it's the first century equivalent to questions like, well, should two people who genuinely love each other be allowed to get married? 
very often it's designed to catch you out. It seems unreasonable to say no. I mean, how can you stand in the way of true love? Surely two people who love each other should be allowed to get married, whoever they are. You kind of want to say yes, but you also know that there's a Christian teaching that you might want to bear in mind that could cause you to say no. It's like, no matter what you say, you're going to end up looking bad to somebody. That's a modern-day equivalent to the question that Jesus is being asked here in this passage. And so, how does he respond? Well, very cleverly, we're told in verse 23, he saw through their duplicity, he saw through their hypocrisy, and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now, I don't know what you think, but I think Jesus' approach here is slightly surprising. I mean, reading that, what's duplicitous, what's hypocritical about the question? It might be a little bit devious, might be slightly annoying or irritating, but it's surely not hypocritical. But Luke says that Jesus saw through their duplicity. He knew that they were being hypocritical. And the reason is that the question was designed to make Jesus look like he was being idolatrous and blasphemous, worshipping another god, while they themselves are being idolatrous and blasphemous. And here's why. Hopefully a picture of a denarius. There you go, uh, on the screen behind me there. That's remarkably similar to the kind of coins we have today. The queen doesn't quite look like that. But other than that, pretty similar to the coins we use today. There's a head in the middle on one side. The head is of Tiberius Caesar. There's another image on the back and underneath it says high priest. And then there was an inscription around the edge which says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Now back then, Pretty much everybody used Roman currency to buy stuff. So all the people in the crowd have got these coins in their pockets. And so when Jesus asks, has anyone got a denarius? I guess someone steps forward with one. They, they all would have had them. And then Jesus says, guys, whose likeness is that on the coin? It's by way of background. The second commandment prohibits you from having a likeness to another god. And so Jesus is pointing out that they're walking around with an image in their pockets of another person who claims to be God. It's like, that's a bit hypocritical, isn't it? And then it goes, whose inscription is this? And they're kind of mumbling, Caesar's? You can imagine Jesus then kind of helping them out. You mean Tiberius Caesar, who claims to be the son of the divine Augustus. So, so let's get this one straight. You're trying to catch me out with a question about whether we should pay taxes while you yourselves have a coin in your pocket that says here's an image of the one who is God. Jesus is saying you need to see that what you're doing here is hypocritical. You need to understand where your assumptions lead you and recognize that you have no basis whatsoever to ask me that question. It's like you yourselves are doing the very thing you're trying to accuse me of doing. The response Verse 26, astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, admittedly, we're not God. And so our brains don't necessarily work quite that fast. So if you're in the middle of a heated debate, you are not necessarily going to be able to think of a line quite as good as that one. But here's what we can learn from Jesus here. Basically, what he's doing is challenging the assumptions of the person, to show them that their view 
isn't really consistent. He's saying, if you actually believe that there should be no compromise with Rome, then none of you should have this coin in your pockets. The fact you do means that your view is inconsistent. If you like, he's pointing out the problems with their whole view of the world. So today, when people who perhaps aren't Christians ask, well, why can't two people who love each other get married? Think, what lies behind that question? What lies behind the question is, perhaps you think I'm exclusive and bigoted because my definition of marriage excludes some people who love each other and want to get married. But if you think about it, so does yours. I mean, why limit this to two people? Why not three? Why not five? Why not a dozen? Why can't I be married to my wife who's married to her brother and my mother? So effectively, I'm married to three people, perish the thought. Why is that a problem? Why do you think there shouldn't be three or five or twelve? And come to think, what's wrong with incest if people genuinely love each other? The answer is that your view of what a marriage is defines who you think is included and excluded from that relationship. And you didn't get that from a divine book like I would with the Bible, but you nevertheless have convictions about what a marriage is and what it's for. At some point, you, even you, draw a line that says this is okay, but that isn't. Can't you see? You and I, we're doing exactly the same thing here. We're both saying that because of what I believe a marriage is, I believe it's limited to a certain type of relationship, and that excludes some other relationships, even though they're quite sincere. So effectively, we're both doing the same thing here, just drawing the line in a different place. The main difference is the view that I have has been around for the best part of 6,000 years. Your view has been around for the last decade or two. You see, it's highlighting some of the inconsistency. You, you say that if two people really love each other, they should be allowed to get married. But you don't really believe that. Because if you did, you'd be saying we could have nine husbands or wives or we could marry our brother or sister or mother or father. But you don't think that that would be particularly good for society. It would be good for anyone. And I'm just saying that you need to think through on what basis you come to your conclusion. So whenever you're approaching issues like that, it can be helpful just to ask the question back. Be thinking, what view of the world is contained in that question And how do I try and help you see that it might not be consistent? Let's keep going. Second story. Slightly different one. I'm not going to spend quite as long on the second and third stories. You may be relieved to hear. The second story, the Sadducees, they try a slightly different approach. Among other things, they believed that death was very much the end. There was no resurrection. There was no eternal life. There was no life after death. And so they come up with this, let's face it, pretty ridiculous hypothetical scenario in which a woman has had seven husbands and wants to know which one is going to be their husband at the resurrection, their husband in the life to come. They're trying to argue that the law of Moses is incompatible with the resurrection. The absurdity of this poor woman's dilemma is designed to illustrate the futility of resurrection hope. Sometimes people will do that. They'll come and say, your view of the Bible doesn't make any sense at all. 
And here Jesus' response is very simple. He starts by saying, actually their question is irrelevant because the current age is different from the next in any number of ways. One of which is that there is no need for marriage in the life to come. Uh, He explains that there's no death, uh, therefore there's no need to go forth and multiply. So if you're wondering kind of, uh, will you be married in heaven? No, you won't. Jesus deals with it very simply here in this passage. And then he goes back to the scriptures and specifically the bit of the Bible that they've just quoted. And he says, do you notice in the burning bush story how it says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He speaks of himself as though he's the God of people who are still alive. He always has. He's been the God of the living throughout the whole Old Testament, not just the first five books, throughout the whole Old Testament. So if you think about it, for God's promises to them, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to come to pass, and for him to still be their God, then the resurrection, then life after death must be a reality. Jesus is effectively saying, the reason you are asking the question is because you don't know your Bible. It's like, you need a hand of the Bible consistently and faithfully without this pick-and-choose mentality. It's not about grabbing some random verse and twisting it to suit the argument that you want to make. It's all about knowing the story of the whole Bible, the context, how it all fits together. Listen, obvious though it is, if you want to be able to answer people's questions about the Bible, you do need to have a grasp of what the Bible teaches. Please, don't take for granted the importance of regularly reading the Bible for yourself. It'll do you good, and it'll also help you answer people's questions with real authority. Let's put away on the side. If you weren't around last autumn, the Big Story series is well worth a listen. If you want a summary of the main themes and message of the Bible, that's a great place to start. You can get it on the Church Central app. It's all there free to listen to straight away. And if you struggle perhaps to, to read the Bible, maybe in terms of motivation or maybe some of the tools to use to get into it, then the Message Sent series is worth a listen to. That's not on the app right now, but you can get that uh, on the church website. Again, free to download. Moving on, third and final story. This one's interesting. This is interesting because Jesus himself actually brings up the topic. It's like Jesus isn't scared of debate. He doesn't just kind of creep around trying to keep a low profile, hoping nobody ever asks him an awkward question. He's not scared to actually start a debate. He's very keen to challenge other people about what they believe. It's kind of the opposite of what England tend to do whenever they score an early goal. It's like they back off, park the bus, defend for the next 80 minutes. There's certainly a case for lumping the ball forward into the opposition's box every now and again because if you spend the whole time playing defensively, you're much more likely to end up conceding. Jesus doesn't just park the bus. Jesus doesn't just stand there and defend the whole time, explaining why his position is okay. He asks some searching questions of his own. And so he says in verse 41, how is it that they say the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Because David calls him Lord. If all we're dealing with here is another military leader like David, who will descend from David and come and be king one day, then 
Why does David call him Lord? If he's the Lord, then that implies he's a much greater person in a much greater category than David. In which case, how can he also be his son? It's a very clever question. It's getting them to wrestle with the whole question of who is the Christ? Who do they actually think Jesus is? He he wants them to engage with that question. He wants them to consider, to think about that. He wants them to consider how they're going to respond to the Messiah, how they're going to respond to him. And that, for all the debates we get into, even now maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, it just all sounds too confusing, too complex, too clever, but that's not the way your mind works. Or I'll try and ask those kind of questions and try to get to the underlying assumptions. I'm bound to end up confused in a muddle and making it worse than it was before. It's like, I'm not the second member of the Trinity, and so how can I ever be expected to argue like that? If that's what you're thinking, it's helpful just to step back and recognize that the question which Jesus wants to leave people with is, who do you say I am? That's where you should always be going. That's where you should always be heading. You can debate about gay marriage and natural disasters and all kinds of other things. And It's important in our society that we know how to think about those issues, that we have an explanation for the faith that we have. Our faith does stand up to scrutiny. We can answer those questions. But ultimately, what Jesus does in this last bit of the passage is he sees a group of people who are listening to his teaching, probably watching the debate and he's concerned that they could perhaps answer all the other questions and still miss the main one. Who do you think Jesus is? At the end of the day that's where we need to land with people. That's some of you who come today. You're not a Christian. You're interested in debating some of the issues I want you to know you are so incredibly welcome here. This is a great place to come with your questions. We'd love to try and answer some of the quick questions, the the issues, the problems that you have. But the most important question which Jesus would put to you is, who do you think I am? Who do you think Jesus is? Who is the Christ? That's where Jesus leaves these people. And that's where I want to leave you this morning. For all the debates we get into, this is the central question. And so, for example, if someone asks me why God allows natural disasters, I might say, look, ultimately, I don't know. Or, or it's because the world's broken, and yeah, it's tragic, it's awful, it's devastating. But you need to know God's fixing it. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's dealt a death blow to that kind of thing. And he's making a new creation in which there'll be no such things as floods or disease or cancer or buildings collapsing or terrorist attacks. I might say that. But then I'll say, having thought about all of that, who do you think Jesus is? That's where I always want to end up. That's the question. That's the thing on which everything else rises or falls. And just so there's no confusion, we believe here in this church that Jesus is God-made flesh, the bringer of the kingdom, the substitutionary sacrifice for all of our sins, the conqueror of death, the ascended and risen king, the giver of the Holy Spirit, the Lord of the whole world, the one who's going to come again in glory and judge the living and the dead. That's who we believe Jesus is. So what better place to land this 
than by focusing on him and worshipping him. Reminding ourselves again what he's like and who he is. Celebrating his supremacy over all things. 